When I was a child, one of the game shows that I used to watch was Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall. I have one vivid memory of a contestant who was faced with a choice between taking cash that was in front of him and that which was behind the curtain. And the person chose the curtain because it was a clue that behind the curtain was a means of transportation. So thinking that he would win a new sports car or a Jeep, the contestant kept choosing what was behind the curtain, even though Monty Hall kept raising the ante, giving more and more money. And with the stakes raised, the contestant refused the large sum of money that was in front of him in favor of what was in the dark behind the curtain. As the curtain opened, it revealed a donkey that was pulling a cart. And in the, the words of the show, the contestant was zonked. And I think I remember, I, the reason I remember that particular one, because there were so many, I don't remember. I remember that particular one because I remember thinking, I was wondering, did the person actually win the donkey? Because in my mind, that wasn't such a bad prize as a 10-year-old boy. I think a donkey is even better than a car, you know. Well, in our text today, in the narrative of the history of Israel that we call First Samuel, it reveals a choice that's made in the dark. We saw last time in chapter 8 of First Samuel how the people's choice for a king prevailed over the prophet Samuel's warnings against having a king. You've rejected your God by choosing this king. The people's desire for a king was a direct rejection of Yahweh. Though God instructed Samuel to find and to anoint a king, Samuel persistently resisted. And we speculated why that might be the case. Samuel was having perhaps a hard time over the fact that God was answering the people's wishes, uh, which was not, at least at this, this time, in their best interest. We left chapter 8 wondering, what would be the circumstances that would bring about this transition of power? What would finally lead Samuel to anoint an office that he was less than happy about, namely the kingship? Well, the answer to that question is now going to be revealed kind of leisurely in, in a narrative, an unusual narrative over the next two chapters. First, in chapter 9, the Lord is going to, going to identify Saul as Israel's first king, and then in the chapter 10, Saul will be publicly inaugurated as king. Chapters 9 and 10 narrate, again, the identification and the inauguration of Saul as the first king of Israel. I'm going to begin by reading the first four verses of chapter 9, which are going to introduce us first to the family of Saul, then Saul himself, and then finally the situation, or it's going to begin the circumstances, which, which kind of bring Saul before Samuel. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. 
So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, arise, and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. Saul was physically everything one might think a king ought to be. He was a man of impressive height and charm. He fulfilled the physical expectation of a monarch. Besides his physical description, we're introduced to Saul here in this unusual story in verses 3 through 10 of 1 Samuel that I will not read, but I'll rather summarize. Hopefully, you've had an opportunity to read it yourself already. Saul's father is Kish. He loses his donkeys. So he sends his son Saul and another servant to go look for them. The search goes on so long that Saul becomes concerned that his father might begin to worry about them. So Saul gives up. He doesn't find the donkeys, and he gives up. This is how we're introduced to Israel's first king. You come away from the onset, as you learn about Saul, that he was a bad shepherd. He could not find his donkeys, his father's donkeys. It foreshadows that he will become a bad king. Ready to abandon the lost donkeys, it's actually Saul's companion that says, wait a minute, there's a prophet, a seer, that's in town, and maybe he can help us. Maybe he can know where the donkeys are hiding. So they consider the idea, and Saul says, no, we don't have any money to give to the seer. And the servant sticks his hand in his pocket, and he happens to have a quarter shekel. And he takes that quarter shekel, and they decide, all right, well, that will be enough to pay the man. So they go and find the seer. Now let's pick up the story in verse 11. I'll read it from verse 11, 1 Samuel 8. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has just come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. Now there's a mystery here, and the seer is not immediately identified. If you're following the story, though, you know who this seer is, verse 14. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now as chance would have it, Samuel, who, remember, the one who was persistently refusing to seek out the king of Israel, now providence brings him before the future king. God is sovereignly arranging the details from the lost donkeys to each stop along the way to bring Saul ultimately to Samuel's doorstep. We're going to come back to verses 15 to 17 in a moment, but I want to complete the story. Look down to verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, Tell me where the house of, uh, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. 
And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all the desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? Now, I find it interesting here that Saul does not immediately realize that Samuel is the seer. Samuel, remember, is Israel's premier prophet. Saul seems to be very little, lightly concerned with the things associated with his nation, certainly not prepared to be a king. It seems that what mattered to Saul most was his family, his clan, and, and his donkeys in this case. Uh, Samuel, being a prophet, knows this and basically says, don't worry about your donkeys, just go to sleep, wait till tomorrow, and not only am I going to tell you everything that's on your mind, but I have some really big news that's going to affect all of Israel. Saul is confused. Verse 21, he answers, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? In other words, why are you telling me that all Israel is, is going to somehow be drawn to me? He can't imagine how one from the least of the tribes of Israel could affect the entire nation. Now realize, he's a Benjaminite. What do we know about Benjaminites? Well, last they appear in the narrative of the nation uh, is in the book of Judges. At the end of the book of Judges, that horrific story that goes on, and there's this civil war between Israel and Benjamin. Benjamin slaughters thousands of Israelites. And finally, Benjamin is almost wiped out by the end of Judges. Its cities are destroyed, 25,000 lost in battle. Israel shuns Benjamin, says we're not permitting any of our daughters to marry a Benjaminite. They're, so they're basically shunned, pushed out. That's how Judges, the book of Judges ends. Benjamin is clearly the least of the tribes. And Saul knew this. And the last place Saul expected to be at this time would be as the guest of honor at a feast with 30 officials hosted by the most famous prophet and judge of Israel, Samuel himself. So imagine the shock when he says, go up to the high place, you're going to eat with me. But not only that, he's brought up to the table. To the, to, he enters the hall. He's escorted to the head of the table. He's served the choicest of meats, the leg. And this is all described in the text. The choice of that, that which was reserved merely for the priest is set before him to eat. And after the banquet, Samuel's men escort Saul to the roof of the house. A bed is prepared for him to sleep in the most comfortable place in the cool of the evening air. Now let's pick up the story in verse 26. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out in the street, and they were going to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may, uh, that I may make known to you the word of God. And so chapter 9 ends with the conversation that we have been waiting for. 
that's, that the previous chapters are all leading up now to this conversation between Samuel and Saul. We wondered how it was ever going to happen. Samuel kept pushing it off, pushing it off, but now it's come. We anticipate that Samuel will now tell Saul that he's about to become Israel's first king. Now, before we read on, I want you to think about Samuel here. Remember, to say that he was not too keen on anointing a king is an understatement. How is it that Samuel, who preached about the danger of having a king, how now would he be convinced to meet with Saul and tell him and anoint him as the king? And the answer we get is in a slight interruption in the, in the text. It's in verses 15 to 17. Verses 15 to 17 are a peek behind the curtain. And most of the events that we're reading about are a narrative. It seems like it's just like an average day. These things are just going on proverbially in the dark, right? The people want a king. Kish loses his donkeys. Saul can't find them. Uh, they look around for a quarter shekel. He finds it buried in his pocket. There's a chance meeting with some women who say he's, he's up there. Uh, Samuel happens to run into Saul. Saul doesn't know who he is. The details can seem quite random, even mundane or bland. Right? As you're reading it, you start thinking, why is this all here? Why such detail? It seems like almost like a groping in darkness. A series of random, mundane events that just don't add up to much. But, behind the curtain, there is a mover of every one of those pieces. And we're going to find out that nothing is random. Nothing is mundane. Everything has a purpose. Though they were not conscious of it, the hand of God was thrusting them together. It had to be. Their paths had to cross. Unbelief might consider these events random. Day-to-day events, product of random chance. But as the hymn goes, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Though we do not see him orchestrating these events, though he is not mentioned in the story, the Lord is plainly at work and his purposes are ripening. They're becoming clear. This is not chance that rules. It is Yahweh who is the ruler. Even as his people, weak, choosing in in the dark, making their best guess as to what they ought to do next, even as they grope amidst minimal light, arriving even at a horrendous conclusion, God is moving in a mysterious way. And this is always the case, brothers and sisters. In every situation in our lives, from the most tragic to the most mundane, from the grandest of stages to the sparrow that hops around on the ground, There is a great mover. And deep within the unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Sometimes it can take a while to trace the hand of God, to trace his sovereign hand in a situation, to trace his hand in something that seems so pointless, so fruitless, 
Only on rare occasions do we get such a glimpse behind the curtain as to what's really going on. This is one of those glimpses. These three verses, 15, 16, and 17, reveal to the reader the invisible circumstances. They reveal to the reader something that happens outside of the narrative of the story. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Listen to the specificity here, verse 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall appoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Echoes of Egypt, Israel, slaves in Egypt in Exodus 3. I've seen the affliction of my people. I heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Here again, God is hearing the cries of his people, his oppressed people for relief from the Philistines. And even though these very same people had sinned by desiring a king, nevertheless, God was gracious to answer them. God brings him right to Samuel's doorsteps. And just in case Samuel was still going to be obstinate, look how clear verse 17 is. When Samuel, now this is, this is the next day, okay? When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, right then, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is shall restrain my people. No doubt, anywhere, a thousand percent clear. Samuel could no longer resist the will of Yahweh. He has made it plain. Samuel was dragging his feet, so God brought Saul right to him, and he said, this is the man, no doubt. So he sends the servant away, and now here on center stage are Saul and Samuel alone. Samuel wastes no more time. He will obey God and anoint Saul as the king of God's choosing, chapter 10. Now, I'm going to read chapter 10, verse 1, from the from a different version. I'll, I'll read this from the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, or you could read any version. But I think the if you have the ESV, which many of you have, I know, I think it unnecessarily includes uh, an explanatory note from the Septuagint that is not found in the Hebrew text. If you look at most of the English ver- versions, at, ch- at verse 1, it leaves out a big chunk. And then if you look at the footnote in the bottom of your ESV, which we rarely do when we read, but it's there for a reason, it'll tell you that this is an insertion. It'll show you exactly where that it was an insertion from the Septuagint. So I'm going to read verse 1, all that to say, from a different version. 1 Samuel 10, 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? As soon as he's alone with Saul, Samuel anoints him and charges him with the kingship of God's people. He anoints him. The word in Hebrew is Meshacha, where we get Messiah, the Christ, or the anointed. He anoints him. Uh, Up to now, the only individuals who were anointed were priests. Anointing was a symbol of being endowed with the Holy Spirit for service. So he's anointing him here, but this time for a king. 
After anointing Saul, Samuel goes on to share a very specific prophecy with him. Again, minute detail. He's going to tell him everything that's going to happen to him over the next day, leading him up to the point where, where the Spirit of God is going to come upon Saul. First, he says, you're going to go to one place. There's going to be two men there. They're going to tell you where your donkeys can be found. Then you're going to go to another's place. Let me just show you just by example here. Verse 3, so you get an idea of the specificity. Verses 3 and 4, the specificity of the prophecy that Samuel is telling Saul. Verse 3, then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor, and there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, and you will take from their hand. Now, very specific there. I just wanted to read that just so you could see the kind of specificity of this prophecy. From there, Samuel tells Saul, you're going to run into some prophets. They're going to be playing instruments and prophesying. And it would be there, verse 6, says he says in verse 6, Then the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord, will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. No generic words, no... Like the, you know, the prophets of today that you go up to them and I see battle in your life. I see you're struggling. I, I see suffering. No, nothing general like that. I, I had a, um, back in my charismatic past, new believer, uh, had heard about the prophet who came to town and, uh, everyone, a number of people from our church were going to see this prophet. And we all went up to her and she spoke to us and she saw me and she said, I, I see that you're in the military. I said, no, I'm, I'm not in the military. She says, I see that you're in spiritual warfare. <laughs> uh, that, who's not, right? And that was my first and last time ever going to such a seer. But this was very specific. Why, why was it so specific? Well, first of all, that's how a true prophet operates. If someone claims to be a prophet, they're not going to say you're in the military and say, oh, it's, I, me- I meant spiritual warfare. A-, a true prophet, then and now, if you would believe in them today, must be 100% right and must not lead the people to another God. That, that's very clear in Scripture. But also, it had to be this way. It had to be this specific to prove to Saul. Remember, he's a Benjaminite. He doesn't think this is not for me. To prove to Saul and to prove to the people of Israel that this was this Benjaminite's calling. Saul was not a politician. He knew nothing about the the nation. He didn't even know who, who Samuel was. It seems he has very little interest in the kingdom of God. So he needed these signs for it to be a clear confirmation that this was coming from Yahweh. So verse 7, Samuel continues, verse 7. Now it will be when these signs come to you, do for yourself whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. See that? There's an assurance for Saul and for Samuel for that matter. God is in this. God is doing this. Trust me, Samuel, I know it's not perfect situation for Israel to have a king right now, but trust me, 
God is doing this. Samuel leaves Saul with some instructions. He says, go wait for me for seven days at Gilgal. I'm going to come back and I'm going to offer a sacrifice, a foreshadow, by the way, of what's going to happen in chapter 13, not too long after Saul has made the king. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He makes the sacrifice himself in direct rebellion against God, and God takes the kingdom away from him because of his rebellion. But this time, Saul, wait for me seven days, and he waits. And verses 9 to 12 give a short version of the events, demonstrating these things did take place. Saul did meet up with the prophets, and he did prophesy, just like Samuel said. And this caused the people to marvel. They said, Saul is among the prophets. Whatever Saul's reputation was to that point, he was, had, did not have a reputation of prophesying. There was a shock. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. They exclaim, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? What's going on here? Yahweh is defying human expectation, showing that he equips who he wills. He equips who he calls. No matter how unlikely the person might be, God will make his those who he calls able by the power of his spirit. Now, before we go on here, I want to just kind of unpack a little. This might be a little technical for some, but I think it's very important for all of us to understand something here. And this is going on in verses 6 and verse 9. First, Samuel's prophecy in verse 6 that God would change Saul into another man. And then what seems to be the fulfillment of that prophecy in verse 9, where it says God changed his heart. What's going on here? Saul is changed into another man. God changed his heart. Now, a lot of bad theology go to these verses and arrive at a conclusion that the text in no way proves. And that's what I want to show you today, so that you can do things like this yourself when you're studying the Word, and something doesn't seem to make sense to you as you're reading it. In verse 9 of chapter 10, it says, God gave, and that Hebrew word is hafak. Now, I don't know Hebrew, and many of you don't know Hebrew, but with Days we're in with computers and whatnot, you just could click on a word and find out what that, the definition of that word in, in Hebrew is. So God, Hafak, gave him, Saul, another heart. What are we to make of this? Now some jump to the conclusion this means the Lord regenerated Saul. There's a horribly bad version called the Good News Version of the Bible that actually translates this verse. God gave Saul a new nature. It's an interpretation. See, what's happened, what happens is, in light of our modern evangelical language, the way we talk, the way we speak about God, God changed his heart. We, we tie that to God saving. God changed a heart, God saved them. And, and if you impose a modern understanding of a, of a word or an idiom or a phrase onto an, the ancient text, you're going to come up very often with the wrong idea. And some whose theology teaches that a believer can lose their salvation, whether that be among the reform circles with the federal vision theology or in Arminianism, full-blown Arminianism, they look at Saul as an example. 
They say God changed Saul's heart, and then later Saul fell away. Carnal Christian theology says God changed Saul's heart, he was regenerated, but he never bore much fruit in his life. So when he died, he was saved, but no rewards. Bad theology put on a verse. This is why it's important. It's an important question. Was Saul a child of God? Why or why not? And how would you defend your claim? If I asked you that, was Saul a child of God? Why or why not? And how would you defend your claim? Now, whatever you think this change might be, we all agree that Saul's ensuing life was a complete disaster. His life denied the faith. He is a murderer. He, he died in unrepentant sin. See, sooner or later, the fruit of one's true spiritual condition becomes manifest. So I asked the question, did Saul ever manifest the evidence of being regenerate? What is the evidence of being regenerate? Fruit of the Spirit. Was there ever fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit in Saul's life? He prophesied. All right, he prophesied. Did not Jesus even say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, but I never knew you? He prophesied. The Spirit of God came upon him. Language, by the way, used in the book of Judges of, uh, of Samson. Spirit of God came upon him. Yes, he prophesied. Yes, text is clear. Can't deny that, right? He was anointed. He was anointed Israel's king. Yes, we're going to see next time. He has this great valiant victory over the enemies, the Philistines. But I ask you again, not whether Saul demonstrated outward acts in accordance with the power of God, but I ask you whether Saul ever demonstrated the fruit of a true believer. Did he ever demonstrate the fruit that comes with one whose heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh? Or in the words of scripture, whose heart was circumcised? See, the Bible uses the term heart. In, in, uh, in Hebrew, it's lab. Lab. It talks about the heart as the place where God works in regeneration by the Spirit. But it never describes God's role in giving this heart with using the Hebrew word hafak, which is what appears in 1 Samuel. Hafak, if you look it up in Hebrew, is best translated and is translated in other contexts. You can look up the word across the scripture as overthrow or turn over. Turn over or, or overthrow. Verse 9 would best be translated, God turned over his heart. Now, it's important for us, as we seek to understand this, that we use Scripture to define Scripture. Not our uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, but we use Scripture to define words for us. God is giving Saul another heart. To jump to the conclusion that this refers to regeneration goes against the de- both the definition of a fock and also everywhere in the scripture we see these two words in connection with one another. Hafak lab. God changed the heart. Hafak lab. And I'm going to call your attention to four of them that I think will make my case. You can turn with me or you could just listen. I, I listed them in your outline so that you could look them up on, on your own. 
But this is a kind of an exercise that I think most of us ought to be able to do, especially using the modern tools that we have to study the word. First one is in Exodus 14, verse 5. Exodus 14, 5. Exodus 14, 5 says, When Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was told that the people had fled, he and his officials changed their minds about them. Hafak Lab. Here, Lab is translated as mind, but it's the very same word, Lab, that we see in 1 Samuel. There it is exactly, Hafak Lab. He changed their minds. God overthrew Hafak. Pharaoh's heart, Lab. Are we to think that Pharaoh's heart changes regeneration? Of course not. Psalm 105, verse 23. Psalm 105, 23. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Verse 25. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He turned their hearts. Hafak laid. God overthrew or turned their hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people. Certainly not regeneration. In fact, it's the opposite. Lamentations 1, 20. Here we're going to see the prophets. That was Pharaoh. That was Egypt. Now the prophet Jeremiah is going to talk about his own heart. Lamentations 1, 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. Jeremiah is lamenting that his heart is overturned. Why? Because he's regenerate? No, he's very rebellious. There's nothing to do here with his salvation. He's talking about an emotional upheaval. And lastly, Hosea 11.8. The Lord himself talking about his own heart. Hosea 11.8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My, this is God speaking, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God here is describing the inner turmoil, a recoiled heart, a heart that is overturned as he's thinking about ever there be a possibility of forsaking my people. So whether it's Pharaoh, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Jeremiah, God himself, Hafak Lab never has anything whatsoever to do with regeneration. And that's how you define a term when you read it. There's a lesson here for us. If someone says something that seems a little off, do a little digging and you'll discover that it is off. I don't know Hebrew. But I can look up words, and so can you. It's easy in our day to do so. And you can look up, it's very easy, with one click of a button, you can find all the cases that a word or a phrase appear, and you can derive the meaning based on that, especially if someone uses a text. Now, again, most of the time people might get shaken by this. Does this mean I need to know Hebrew? Listen, 99% of the time, the English translation conveys exactly what the original language intends. 
But we also need to be thankful in that 1% of the case that there are linguistic scholars who've done, who do know Hebrew, have done the study for us, and can point us in the right direction to understand the meaning of difficult phrases. But never impose your understanding in a, in a modern context on the ancient text. That's an exegetical fallacy. It's called anachronism. It's reading back later uses of a word into an earlier text. And the original author never intended that whatsoever. Words and idioms change over time. They become jargon to us. So we talk about God changing hearts, and we all know what that means. We understand it's not bad to say God changed a heart. We understand in our culture, in our context, what that means. But the scripture defines it accurately as God circumcised a heart. God took out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. But nowhere God overturned hearts in his work of salvation. Something happened to Saul, though. He changed. People around him noticed it. He's prophesying. He never did before. But when the episode is over and Saul goes home, this new Saul goes back to being the old Saul. Look at verse 14. Presumably now Saul's at home and his uncle's there. He says, Saul's uncle said to him and his young, and, and his young man, the guy he was with, he said, where did you go? And he said, to look for the donkeys. And we saw that they were not anywhere. So we went to Samuel and Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncles, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he didn't tell him about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had had said, so much for prophet Saul. You know, those who have that gift of a prophet, the one thing they do is speak up. But he fails to speak up in the most important aspect of his meeting with Saul. Maybe he thought his uncle wouldn't believe him. Maybe he was questioning himself. There's obviously doubt here. And so as chapter 10 concludes, Saul's Secret anointing in these last 10 verses from verse 17 to 27. The secret anointing that we saw at the beginning of the chapter now becomes public at an assembly at Mizpah. Saul, already privately anointed the king, now he comes before a public assembly. The whole nation is now going to see who their king is going to be. This was important, again, important for the people, important for Saul. Had to be public. But before Saul is inaugurated, one more time, Samuel is going to get back on that soapbox. He's going to do another sermon about how you rejected Yahweh as their king, just to let them know. Look at verse 17 to 19. Then Samuel called the people together to Yahweh at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kings that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. So now there, take your stand before Yahweh by your tribes and by your clans. In other words, we're doing what you wanted, okay? One last warning, not even a warning. It's like, we're going to go through with this, but just so you know, this is going to be bad. He's making this somber speech here, but I think also preparing Israel for the calamity that was going to come. You know, Saul's was ultimately a failure. Samuel's, uh, Saul's failed king, t- kingship was a consequence 
of them craving a monarch so that when Saul did fail, they could say, you know what, Samuel did tell us this would happen about four or five times. So with 20-20 hindsight, they could realize they, they missed it. So he issues the last warning, lines up the people, and now God's will is going to be carried out, even if this will will eventually crush them. Most believe that a lot was cast, uh, which is odd in and of itself, an unusual way to choose a king. But remember, they're in the dark. They're choosing in the dark. And when you're in the dark, and when you have no clear path, and you don't know what God's will is, uh, flipping a coin sometimes seems like a good idea. Sometimes we've done that. And the lot falls on the tribe of Benjamin. No one bats an eye and says, wait, the king should be from Judah. Wait a minute. No, no one says anything. All right, Benjamin will take that. And then the lot falls on Saul's clan, and then to no surprise on Saul himself. Now, some were shocked by the selection, but certainly Samuel knew the results. He had already prophesied it. Those who prophesied with Saul probably knew that this was going to be the guy. And Saul himself, right? He, he would have known the lot was going to fall on him. So he's ready, right? He's ready to go. All right, I, it's on. First Benjamin, oh, okay, this is actually going to happen. Then Saul's claim, oh, oh, it's going to be me. I know it's going to be me. This is it. I'm ready. They told me I'm going to be the king. Here it comes. And the lot falls on him. And what does verse 21 say? They looked for him, but they couldn't find him. Don't miss the irony here. Because what else in the story does it say the same words they couldn't find? The donkeys. Perhaps the author is suggesting that Saul is a donkey of sorts. Verse 22. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? In other words, Lord, did we pick the right guy? Did the lot, was a lot accurate? And the Lord says, you got the right guy. He says, behold, he's hiding himself in the baggage. The Lord says that. Your king, who you wanted, he's hiding himself in the baggage. Verse 23. So they ran and took him from there and stood among the people. And he was taller than all the people from, from his shoulders upward. So what? He's hiding himself. He's a king. He's tall. Wow. He may not be the brightest bulb in the bunch, but uh, he's tall. Verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. And I have to wonder at times, you know, I've read this many, many times, but at reading it in the context, I have to wonder if this was somewhat sarcastic. Do you see whom the Lord has chosen hiding in the baggage? There's none like him. And all they can celebrate is that he's tall. Verse 24, people shouted and said, long live the king. Now, that might have been a half-hearted cheer. Certainly there were some in the audience who doubted. And the chapter concludes in verses 25 to 27 with Samuel basically writing a constitution to set up this new monarchy and sending the people home. But I want you to look at verse 27. It says, certain vile men said... Some of your versions might say worthless fellows. Worthless or vile. Either way, not good, right? Said, how can this one save us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. So from the onset, Israel's king was a divisive figure. 
Division in politics is nothing new. But notice, the men who despised Saul's kingship were described as what? Vile. To not agree with God's anointed choice for king is vile. Israel would later face another king who would divide the people. So much so that the people would cry out for someone else. Release to us Barabbas. What shall I do with your king? Crucify him. This king, many in the nation would deride and question and still ask the same question to this day. How can this one save us? What can a king of the Jews nailed to a tree do for me? How can he save me? How can he deliver me from my fears, my anxieties, my troubles, my family, my tragedy, my marriage? How can he deliver me? How can he save me? And sadly, far too often, we hear our own voices among the vile men who questioned, what can God's anointed actually do for me? Lastly, I want to consider what we might learn from the events of these two chapters. A few things. First, it reveals to us that God is sovereign over every detail, even the most mundane. I want you to think of the most mundane detail of your life this past week. God was sovereign over that. He who directs the path of milk cows causes donkeys to stray, and ordains the trail of a sparrow, has a far greater interest in you, his beloved children. He orders our very steps. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. There is no such thing as happenstance, brothers and sisters. We may not know where our next hour is going to carry us. We cannot know. We cannot know a minute into the future. But God knows it. God knows the end from the beginning because he defines it, because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And that is a great comfort to the people of God. Brethren, to know as we're going to sing God willing at the end, he holds our future. This unseen hand is directing our paths. We may feel like we're plugging away day-to-day things, argument with the, with the spouse, another day goes by, groping in the dark, not really knowing why am I here, why am I on this path. It's boring, it seems lifeless, it's difficult to walk on this path. It's hard to see anything redemptive in what I'm doing, my career. God is ordering, be sure, brother, sister, God is ordering those unsure steps. You know, all all we see are the mundane, the lost donkeys. You say, I feel like I'm just like, it's random, I'm choosing in the darkness. But he is bringing about his perfect will. We see the lost donkeys. We see the temporary, annoying little things that happen every day. We see the things that seem to be a waste of time. We see traffic. God is ordering that for his kingdom purposes. 
in an invisible way. He's bringing about every purpose in every situation. We may not know what God's invisible hand is doing, but we know it is that he is working his will. We also learn from this text that God directs how God directs the paths of people who are walking with minimal light. Remember, the people in this story, at times when you read it, there seems to be incompetence here. You know, with 2020 hindsight, we, we, we could fill in a lot of things they should have known. And not to, not the least of which is the future king. There are so many opportunities they have along the way to make a mistake. What if this doesn't happen? What if this piece is missing? They have here an opportunity, they're choosing lots. What if they pick the wrong person? See, from a human perspective, you start to wonder, how on earth is God's choice ever going to come? How is it ever going to be arrived at with so many random events going on? They seem lost. They seem groping in the dark unless, unless there is a God in whom there is no darkness at all is moving them. Psalm 139, verse 12, says of our Lord, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. We can look at the incompetence of our governing leaders. And we have seen, we've even seen how our election ballots being cast might as well have been done in the dark. But we can rest in the fact that God ordains our leaders for his purpose. And whatever he ordains is right. Romans 13 tells us, in the beginning of Romans 13, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by him. Now Saul would become an awful king. Those men who questioned Saul's appointment in verse 27, how can this one save us? And those that despised him didn't bring him any tribute. Actually, they were right in the long run. But what does God call them? Does he call them prophets? Does he call them righteous men? He calls them vile men. They were right. But God's assessment of them is they're vile and worthless. They did not recognize the man he chose to be their leader. And likewise, brethren, we could raise legitimate concerns about individuals who are running for office in this country, whether it's president or governor or Congress. And we may even be right about our assessment. But once that person is in office, you are to honor him as God's selection. If not, it puts you among the vile, worthless fellows. And you need faith to believe this, because if you just see with your eyes and your sense, you have little hope that any of these candidates will do anything good, let alone accomplish the purposes of God. May God give us the faith to believe his word. And lastly, I want you to consider in this text the grace of God. Think about it. Here are these people in Israel. They rejected God as their king in favor of this man who hides himself in the baggage. But God is not slighted by this. The rejection and the rebellion of man does not keep God from acting in mercy. It does not keep him from hearing and answering the cries of his people. Oh, God saw the idolatry. God saw they want, them wanting a king was a rejection of him. Don't question that. But he also saw their affliction. 
He sees your distress. He sees your cries for relief. Israel's folly would not diminish God's mercy, nor will ours. It will always be the case that our sins, though many, his mercy is more. Without denying the wickedness of sin, God is never impassive or indifferent to the sorrow of his people. He always hears the cries of his people. He always is near the brokenhearted. He is a merciful Savior. Let me ask you, do you know this merciful Savior? If not, may he have mercy on you and open up your eyes of his, for his great salvation. May he grant you a circumcised heart today, a new heart that is characterized by new affections and a new life. I pray today that you would seek him even if you feel like you're in the darkness. Perhaps feel your way toward him that you might find him. He's not far off. And I close with the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. Today here, if you're, if you're apart from him, listen to these words. Let them speak to your heart. The word of God says in Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place. God made you exactly the way he intended to make you and put you in the very same place, very same nation, very same family. Exactly what he intended. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. May you reach out and receive Jesus today.